to the I Have a Health Vista podcast. I'm Jenny. And I'm Amy. We're looking at quite a contentious subject today, aren't we, love? We thought, you know, let's take on a big debate. Yeah, and I don't think there's many that are bigger than uh, the one you've chosen. Absolutely. I thought, let's go for it. Cry it out, sleep techniques. Yeah. Let's, Let's take a deep dive down into that one. And it is such a contentious argument. I have done oh, a massive di- deep dive into the research on this. Yeah. I was to say, you have been buzzing about everything you've done with this. So interesting. really exciting. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you for uh, sharing mm, <laughs> your I'm knowledge with me. Yeah. So yeah, so this is not going to be one of those quick ones that we fire out, um, guys. So, you know, buckle in. This is a yeah. good, meaty episode. I was going to say, if you're hoovering, get ready to pull every sofa out from the corner (laughs) if you're walking for the dog walking for the dog walking the dog limber up because we're going to take you right into the next town yeah this is a muddy (laughs) muddy walk you're about to go on in the muddy realms of cryotow extinction sleep techniques i'm i'm liking the similes there i don't know is it similes it is similes isn't it yeah metaphor is it metaphors metaphors Mm mm-hmm Good metaphorical speaking. Well, thanks. Mm-hmm. You know, I always worries, aim for no that. Worries. That's what you said. Because we, we've, we've been talking about doing a podcast on this for about three years, haven't yep. we? Yep. But every time it gets to it and we're like, oh, I just don't think I've done enough reading. This time, folks, I have done enough reading. I can confirm <laughs> I have done enough reading for this. Yeah, I will be playing the part of everyone else listening going, but what? <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Excellent. So, yeah, so this is contentious and everyone has a personal opinion on this, don't they? And I think that's important to recognise with this area. Everyone has a personal opinion. Everyone has a view. This is what I did with my children, okay? And with this particular issue, more than any other, I think, possibly more than any other, our belief is a strongly held one and we believe that we're right yeah emotionally yeah. we believe that we're right on an emotional level without yeah. having even considered the research so I feel the need to declare that you know in my pursuit to remain impartial and have a good unbiased look at the evidence base I am declaring that I am firmly against cry it out sleep techniques on an emotional level you know personally yeah. okay having said that Having now done a deep dive into the research, I can also say that following the research base, I am also against it on an objective, in an objective way, if that makes sense. Okay. I really yeah. tried hard, and I know it's not possible to ever put aside your, your preconceived beliefs and expectations, but I really did try hard when I was reading for yeah. this. I tried to look for the evidence that it was fine the evidence that it does no harm, the evidence that it's actually beneficial for the child and the self-soothing argument. I really tried to look for that, okay? Yeah. So I think one of the things that brought it out for us that we were we were sort of chatting about on WhatsApp um, right back in March. Do you remember yeah. March? Do you remember well, March? Before we locked down and things. Oh, it was such a beautiful um, time. Yeah. <laughs> and so there was an article in The Guardian talking about um how a, a research had shown that leaving babies to crime did no harm yeah and we went really Which did it? Yeah. research yeah. yeah we thought we wanted to read that bit of research didn't we um so i think 
before we get into that study, it might be helpful just for people who are listening to clarify, because there's a lot of um, muddy water on this. Um, there's a paper by Honecker et al. Um, in 2018, so a couple yeah. of years ago only, just a couple yeah. of years ago. And this is basically a parent survey on real-world implementation of infant behavioural sleep interventions, okay? So this is basically talking about what do parents do um, and what is it? what's the language, what's the terminology that people use, what do they mean when they say cry it out, um, you know, what are people doing, okay? Right. So I think it's useful for parents to have a flavour of that because I was actually quite surprised by some of this. Um, yeah. I feel like I should just add as well, um, just in case, if you're a seasoned I Am A Health Visitor podcast listener, mm. you'll know in our blurb we attach all of the links that we references talk about. yeah but it references yeah this blurb's going to be long but yeah so if this is your first podcast do not worry do not need to be rushing to grab <laughs> pen and paper it's all in the blurb afterwards yeah. that you I can follow the links before, and have a look through yeah i just yeah. linked to the article in the blurb that's a good shout thanks jenny um so yeah, so on average, parents implemented some kind of behavioural sleep intervention when their infant was 5.6 months old, on average. So quite young. Wow, yeah. So young average age, yeah. Um, most parents used a modified or unmodified extinction technique. So what they mean when they say that is they mean... Um, an unmodified extinction sleep technique means put your baby in their cot in a different room from you, close the door and leave and don't go back to them right. until the morning. That is what that means. Okay. God. So that's, that's what they mean. When they say, I, know, I, know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But that is what that means. And they say an unmodified extinction technique, it means leave them to cry on their own God. with no intervention, no going back in, no nothing. Okay? Yeah. A modified extinction technique means you go back in in some way so you go back in and check on them you you know whatever you do you yeah, go back in the whole and pick, pick up put down um the, the pick up chair. put down thing um okay so unmodified extinction is just going and leaving the room not returning to check on them Modified extinction is a parent leaves the room but returns at intervals to check or reassure the infant. So that's like the Ferber method, if you've heard of the Ferber method, American, American oh, sleep technique. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. Um, then there were two additional methods that we've seen. Um, parental presence, which is the parent staying in the room continuously but without providing additional support. So that's like in the UK we sometimes call that the disappearing chair routine. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or in America, they call it, um, and in the literature, it's often referred to as camping out. They call that camping right. out, where you camp out in the infant's room, but you so you're present, but you're not providing yeah. any support. And then the last one is parental presence with support. So that's staying in the room continuously and providing help. So patting the infants, shushing them, rocking yeah. them, picking them up. Um, but then when the ultimately when the infant's going to sleep, you put them back down again before they fall asleep. Right. Yeah. So that's four different versions of the same thing, essentially, because yeah. all of that involves ignoring the infant's cues to a greater yeah. or larger extent. Yeah. Okay. Um, the last one, parental presence with support, some would argue is cue based and responsive in some ways. Okay. But it still doesn't allow the child to fall asleep in your arms. It is a 
yeah. or sleep technique where you're putting them down before they fall asleep. Okay. Um, so this is, so this is a, an, this is a, this isn't, when I say, sorry, when I say the average um, age of trying out sleep interventions, this isn't for the general population. This is a population of parents that were planning to try sleep interventions or were interested in trying them. Okay. Oh, okay. So this is recruited from a Facebook group about sleep training. Right. So this so is a peer support group. you've already got a group, group of parents who are have pro some sleep training. anxiety and possibly anxiety around sleep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They need to do this for yeah. their child. Yeah. So. This is a group of parents who... Um, are very much advocates of sleep training in different forms and description and it's a peer support group for those parents where they tell each other you know hang on in there kind of thing you're doing good sort of thing doesn't exactly sound like the best group to recruit for a research study from you know what i mean but it depends what you're researching so in this case what they're researching is when do people do these sleep techniques and what are the um like what's the normal if people are going to do it when do they do it? What type of technique yeah. do they use? You know, okay. what does it co-occur with? You know, does it yeah. co-occur with bed sharing, with breastfeeding, with room sharing, with, you know, all those things? So mm. unsurprisingly, it doesn't co-occur with those things very often. Um, no. And it was a big, you know, they did, they had a total of 652 participants, quite a big sample. I mean, we wow. don't need to go into the details of this too too deeply, but ultimately they found the average age of implementing was 5.6 months. I think that's a really relevant detail. The majority of parents used a modified or unmodified extinction technique. So 49.5% used a modified extinction technique. So to remind yeah. you, that's where they put the baby in the cart, go out of the room, but come back in the room to check on the baby multiple times. Okay? Yeah. Unmodified extinction is literally put them in the room and ignore them till morning. And that's 34.9% of parents did that. Right. Um, 10%, 9.8% used parental presence. So the disappearing chair, the camping out, that one. Yeah. Um, Not many. So the majority of them were using some form of extinction technique. And really, when we're talking in this podcast about cry it out sleep techniques that is the type of sleep technique i'm talking about so to clarify my terminology i'm talking about an extinction technique which will being put the parent put the child in their cot and leave the room perhaps return into the room um you know maybe talk to the infant briefly and then leave the room again those type of techniques it's not a um parent soothing them that's not what we're talking about we're talking about leaving them to cry yeah, I, so I, I feel really surprised at how big a percentage of parents did do that technique. I mean, you'd think it would be practically yeah, so. That's a percentage of parents would be able to do that that are signed up to a Facebook group planning to do it. That's not all oh, yeah. parents. Yeah, yeah. that's Very true. So a lot of parents wouldn't be signed up to that Facebook group. No. Yeah. Yeah. So they would never have even seen that survey. So that is yeah. a survey of people who are planning to do it. So that is, you know, when you when you see parent in a new birth study in a new birth visit and they're talking about learning to self-soothe and um you know settling it's those parents that we're talking about the parents that are considering self-settling they're the parents that are likely to be part of you know groups like this that's the kind of um percentage that we're talking about yeah Yeah. so it was young and it was they were quite extreme cry out methods but these are methods that parents are using yeah 
Yeah, so this isn't actually an uncommon thing that people do do, although that that paper that I was just talking about there is quite a self-selecting sample, obviously. Yes, there yeah. are a lot of research papers that um, are looking at um, opportunity samples of parents and then following uh-huh. how many of them do this type of um, technique. So one of the papers that we're going to talk about in a bit more detail is the one that's made all the headlines, which is this Bill yes. and Walk one. Yeah. Um, and in that study, before we talk about it properly, it does just mention the um, frequency of people trying out um, leaving their infant to cry techniques. Uh-huh. Now, their definition of leaving their infant to cry is extremely loosey-goosey, which is one of the issues <laughs> with the study, and we're going to talk about that. But okay. to give you a, a brief idea, the majority of p- parents at... Um, term so when their baby was term age full term newborn 63% said they'd never had okay left their infants to cry 63.4% said they never had um which still means there's still almost half said still quite a big proportion that said that they had tried it at newborn at term um, as time went on, more parents reported infant to cry out a few times 29.1% at term uh-huh. 48.9% at three months and 52% at six months. So Maybe. by six months, 52.1% of the parents had attempted a cry it out technique. Wow. Yeah. So it is yeah. quite, I'd say that's, well, I mean, it's half, isn't it? That's half the parents. Yeah. High income mothers most frequently never left their parents to cry it out. So it's oh. interesting little um, factor. Yeah. Um, older mothers were less likely to leave them to cry it out. Oh. Mm. So interesting little yeah. interactions there that they found. Um, they didn't find a difference in um, whether they were breastfeeding or not, which I was surprised by. They didn't yeah. find a difference in whether they were sleeping in the parents' room or not. They didn't find a difference in whether they were firstborn child or not. Um, wow. None of all of that surprised me. But yeah. anyway, as as I'll say, this this study is far from perfect. But hopefully, that might give people a little idea. And essentially, the point, the reason I mention those figures is purely to show people that this is something that a lot of people are doing. This is not a yeah. tiny proportion of the parents that we see. This is quite no. a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. So this article in the Guardian mm-hmm. that um, that sort of suggested roughly that this debate around cry out had been reignited, mm-hmm. and that actually a lot of experts um, sort of it had been said that cry out may help them develop self control, but that many experts disagreed. Mm. Um. And yeah, the research was suggesting that allowing them to ball did no harm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really tricky, isn't it? It's just sort of, <laughs> and so they come up with these sort of bits of research, and people kind of go, "Wow, you know, amazing." Yeah, okay. brilliant. It's obviously yeah. fine. Science because, shows me it's fine to leave my child yeah, to cry it out. But then I think even I, with my mini glimpse through, kind of thought. Yeah, it was a the study had a very small sample size, mm-hmm. and parents were self reporting. Mm-hmm. So all of us from our research modules see those as red flags. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, 
and there was also quite a wide, as I remember, there was quite a wide range of ages that the parents yes, had left them at, yeah. but they'd grouped them all into this one pot, whether it was a four-month-old baby or a two-and-a-half-year-old. Yeah. So, I mean, so briefly, an overview of what this study is, um, it's a cohort study. Um, so cohort studies, they take a cohort of parents, a gr- group of parents that are linked only by the fact that their children are the same age um, and they follow those parents through a longitudinal, well, sometimes longitudinal research Yeah, piece of research. And they do, in this case, questionnaires and observations at time points through that. Um, thing so it's not a randomized control trial a randomized control trial is you take a group of participants you split them yourself randomly into two groups the parents that cried it out the parents that didn't okay obviously you can't do that with the cry out sleep technique because parents will do what they're going to do obviously you can't tell them do cry out yeah i think there'd be a few issues with compliance if they (laughs) yes yes so this is a cohort study so um it's useful, but the most a cohort study can ever do is show a correlation. Because you don't have that randomizing, you can't ever show causation. Yeah. So you yeah. can only ever show these two things happen to correlate. You can't say X causes Y. Yeah. Um what they did, they recruited 178 newborn infants and their caretakers from three hospitals in the east of England. Yeah. The original study was about preterm or low birth weight studies. So there's a big proportion of the sample had um, low birth weight and were born at 32 weeks or less. Okay, yeah. so that's a relevant thing for you to bear in mind. However, the, the authors say that there'd been no demonstrated difference in previous research in crying behaviour between preterm babies and full-term babies. So they just mm. lumped them all together. Um, and basically what they did, they asked mums to report on how often their babies cried and for how long, straight after birth, at three months and then at 18 months. And they were also asked how often they let the baby cry it out when they were a newborn, when they were three months, when they were six months and when they were 18 months. Um, and then they measured a variety of outcome measures. Um, right. They claimed that the study showed that crying it out during the first six months was not associated with adverse behavioural development and attachment at 18 months. So they're making big statements here with this research. Yeah. Key points, okay, key points that the authors would like you to take home. These are in bold in a big box at the bottom of the paper, okay? Three bullet points. The three bullet points the authors want you to take home are... It has been the subject of vehement discussion between attachment theorists and behaviourists since half a century ago whether parents should leave their infant to cry it out or respond immediately and attempt to soothe him or her. No adverse impacts of leaving infants to cry it out in the first six months on infant mother attachment and behavioural development at 18 months were found. And the final bullet point, parents may be reassured that there is no harmful impact of leaving their infants to cry it out, sometimes or often during infancy, while a parent is present, the infant is safe, and they monitor the infant's crying. Okay, so oh. that's what that that's what they have said are the key points from their piece of research. So they're talking about crying it out and parental presence. So, um, oh, okay. That's not crying it out then, is it? Well, so 
if you look at a modified extinction technique, then yeah, you could argue that that's crying it out. You could say that, you know, I was there, but I wasn't offering any reassurance. I was in the yeah. room, but I wasn't. So camping out, for example, would be an example yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, I would say, though, that nowhere in their study do they mention or measure in any way parental presence, infant safety or monitoring the infants crying. So yeah. that's a big statement to include in your key point when it's nothing that you've mentioned the entire research. Yeah. Number two, it doesn't tell us that there's no harmful impact. It tells us that they found no correlation between leaving it to cry, whatever that means, and the yeah. variety of poorly measured outcome variables that they've covered in this study, many of which don't appear to bear much resemblance to what they claim to be measuring, and we can get into that. Um. So... You would assume from this, for example, that this is about sleep, wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. They don't ask about sleep. They don't even mention no. sleep. There's nowhere that... that they ask about sleep. See, I thought I'd misheard you when you said about <laughs> them asking about how long they cry for. And I thought, what, just generally, if they're upset? Yeah, and exactly. that is what they're actually measuring. Exactly. The measure oh that they're basing all of this on, the question is, have you ever tried leaving your baby to cry it out during this time? The answers were as follows, never, once, a few times, and often. So that's the question. So they then combined <laughs> the responses of never and once into one group, and they called that the right. no-cry-it-out group. And then the analysis had three groups, the no-cry-it-out, the cry-it-out a few times, and the cry-it-out often. That was what they used for an analysis. So for a start, you've got a rubbish question that you're using that tells us absolutely yeah. nothing. And then you're proceeding to group oh. which as we know is not something you can do in stats you can't just take yeah a, a um categorical variable and condense those groups down yeah. and then change your analysis is going to be biased by that anyway so that's but that's detail but the most important thing to take away from that is that we don't know that they're trying that they're using quiet out methods for sleep yeah you know, we don't, it could be, are they saying quiet out when in daytime, in the nighttime? Is it like yeah. unavoidable quiet out? So I'm in the car and I can't get to them. Is yes, that safe? Yeah. Is it in the context of parents feeling very guilty about calming it, crying it out? Or is it in the context of parents making a choice they're comfortable with? Is it even well, anything to do with sleep? Is it at sleep time? Is it at nap time? Is it at night time? Is it during a temper tantrum? Which a lot say. of parents might say yeah. we've left them to cry it out in a temper tantrum. Yeah. It's, you know, so, okay. I would argue uh. that that question gives us such scant information on what cry it out actually means that it's largely useless in determining our practice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you might assume that it's about sleep, number one. You also might assume that it's about development, right? Because they've mm -hmm. said behavioural development is what they've measured. Yeah. If you were as as a practicing health visitor, Jen, if I asked you, give me a measure of development, what might come to your mind? What might you think um, of using? ASQ. Yeah, that was the first one that leapt to my mind as well. Yeah. Okay, no, they don't use anything even vaguely resembling an ASQ. Um, oh. <laughs> so their scale, maternal infant behaviours, which must be the domain that they're calling behavioural development. Right. A lot of their scales, by the way, were hybrid scales that were drawn from other scales. So they called it the poser scale, for example, which is a validated scale. But they didn't actually use the poser scale. They used like subsections of it, like little bits of it here and okay. there. They didn't use a full 
quite, that was quite frequent through the study. They oh, did okay. That so they kind of they pull together a questionnaire for parents, but taking chunks from other questionnaires. So it would almost be like using a section of the ASQ on its own. Not, yeah. yeah. So as right. we know in research, that's not a good thing to do because the scale is validated no. as a whole. So unless you're using yes. it in the way that it's been tested, then the validity yeah. and reliability scores of the scale don't apply to the research that you're using it for. Um, right. So that's one problem. In this case, they used activity, intensity and persistence or attentiveness. And they combined that to create a scale that they called poor attention slash hyperactivity. Okay. (laughs) And then the second one was they used social referencing, emotional tone and amount of vocalisation. And they combined that to make a scale of social referencing. Okay. Then they did video observations and they did, they combined attentiveness, competence, cooperativeness, robustness slash endurance, demandingness and difficultness observations to make a scale that they called task persistence. And then they created a third measure of their own based on ratings of adaptability, initial approach to examiner, and emotional tone. And do you know what they called that scale, Jenny? Go on. Easiness. Pardon? Easiness. How easy the child is. Oh, my word. So... (laughs) Can you imagine if we started measuring children for easiness? You've come in for your child's two-year development review, and what we're going to measure is their easiness, their task persistence their attention and activity levels and their social referencing. And that's all we're going to measure. We're not going to mention gross or fine motor control. We're not going to mention cognitive functioning. We're not going to mention personal social development. Mm. That's what we're going to mention. And I think that tells us a lot more about what we societally expect of an 18-month-old than it does about development. Um, So, yes, the development measure leaves much to be desired. Um, and these were also self-reported by the parents oh no a lot of those were video observations okay okay um another point it makes is about maternal sensitivity so they were very clear that one of the things they wanted to research was whether parents who leave their child to cry it out are more emotionally sensitive and responsive and have better attachment relationships Uh or not (laughs) you know because that's one of the things people complain about um yeah and do you know how they measured maternal sensitivity, Jenny? Uh, um, <laughs> was it their gut feeling when the mother walked into the room with the child? <laughs> no, it was slightly better than that. It okay. was a four-minute video clip of the child and mother playing together. Okay. And then that was um, coded. So they knew dun, that dun, they were see... being videoed. They were in an right. experimental scenario with the child and mother oh, playing gross. together. The child wasn't in any way distressed. It was just the mum playing yeah. with the child. There's no test of the mum's response to the child's distress there at all. Oh, jeez. No. Um, and I noticed, sort of sitting in your notes, it says well, there was no measure of the stress or cortisol in either infant or mother as well. No. So even if the mum had had nightmare journey in, then plastered on her best hi mm. face, we'd have there no idea. There's been no oh crumbs. Um, I'm try. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to keep this as kind of quite like methodological because there are a lot of methodological problems with this study. Which to the point where I would say we can say that we need to exercise extreme caution with these findings. Okay. Um, uh huh. 
they they're kind of positioning this as cry it out as being part of teaching self-soothing right and they're saying that it's part of authoritative parenting which is defined by them as limit setting and high levels of emotional warmth which as we know is authoritative parenting so you set limits but you do it within the context of emotional warmth yeah i mean it could be argued i think that when you're doing a cry it out sleep technique you are deliberately ignoring the infant's cues that is what you're doing yeah. Yeah. Whether you think that's a, the right thing to do or not is that's a, a emotional decision, I suppose. But what you are doing is ignoring the cues. So you could argue that that's not an example of high levels of emotional warmth. Uh huh. Would you say it's fair to say that it's not a not not a very emotionally warm thing to do to put your baby yeah. in a crib and walk away? Yeah. So I think it's a bit unfair to position it as part of authoritative parenting. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying there? Because it's it seems to me limit setting without the emotional warmth side. Yeah. Um and they don't yeah, they're not clear about what they mean by of... self soothing either. Sorry, no. what were you gonna say there, Jan? No, um I say it's just a lack of responsiveness, isn't there, really? That is exactly the point, yeah. So, yeah, that is exactly the point. Um, and they're, they're using the term self-soothing, but it's not clear what they mean by that. So sometimes that's used no. to mean that infants can move from one sleep cycle to another independently without any yeah. support. And we know that that varies vastly between infants. Um, or do they mean emotionally regulating themselves? Which, as yeah. we know from the neurology, is widely considered impossible at this age or do they just mean reducing their crying behavior which obviously isn't self-soothing that's just not crying no exactly um um so we're sighing now because we're sad that they've produced this research that we it makes so many big claims and doesn't back any of them up yeah yeah so this this group of researchers and another, there's another group of researchers as well um, that are both firmly pro cry it out and the argument they're using throughout is that this is um, important for parents' mental health. So they're saying that cry it out is a strategy to improve parents' mental health and it's a self care strategy for parents. Okay, and we know how important sleep is for mental health. Of course we do. Yeah, we know how much sleep deprivation can be torture. And yeah. how parents are on their knees, desperate for more sleep. Um, yeah. What we don't know from this paper or any other paper, really, is that they don't gather any data on mental health in this study no. that we're talking about. They haven't mentioned mental health at all. No. Um, and they don't tell us what the reasons were for parents leaving babies to cry. So we don't know whether that's in the context of a mental illness yeah or not um and even from the wider literature um we don't have convincing evidence that cry it out does improve parents mental health and i did take a bit of a dive into the literature on this and it seems to me that it's likely to be a lot more complicated than simply cry it out that improves your mental health there are papers that link the two there are a lot of them and one of them we can talk about in a minute because it's on my list but it certainly is more complicated than just simply do a cry out sleep yeah. methodology and your depression will go away. 
Yeah. It isn't that simple. But it is also that whole thing of this whole narrative around baby sleep being a problem that needs to be solved. Yes. When actually it just feels like that is just kicking dirt over the hole that is understanding what is biologically normal Mm -hmm. and working with rather than yeah sort of trying to hide and cover up and things and it feels like setting parents up to fail doesn't it because really yeah it's it's the problem is that society fails to support families effectively to be able to deal with yeah infant normal infant sleep so the solution to that problem is not cry it out sleep methodologies in my book it's change society so that women are able to manage and cope with well, the difficult parents men as well it's not just yes of course it is role, i think with yeah. sleep what the research tells us is that the, the burden of sleep deprivation commonly falls on oh yeah the stay-home parent which in the uk unfortunately tends to be more the commonly the mother yeah um but you do make a good point that of course of course and you know dads are largely it's a big knowledge gap in this literature is dads and co-parents co-parents generally um so yeah so that's that study so i think i hope i've made it clear that interpret that study with caution and certainly the headline of cry it out doesn't your baby no harm is not as simple as they have stated it there's big or problems true. with the methodology of this study, yeah. with the the mostly the outcome measures that they're using. Yeah. Um, I was going to say not not as simple or as true. No, what you said <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you could argue outright a lie. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think they're they're aware that people will interpret this to mean about sleep. Of course, yeah. they will because yeah. that's when you use cry it out. As a term, you use it in reference to sleep usually. Um, mm-hmm. But this isn't anything to do with sleep. They haven't even mentioned sleep. The entire study, they don't mention sleep once. So Jeez. it's very misleading, to be honest. It made me a bit cross. <laughs> As you can tell. I was going to say, I can tell. Yeah. It's, it's funny, other people might not be able to tell that this is someone who is cross. It's very like, <laughs> They're like, but she sounds so jolly. It's like, no, 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 this is This, this is, is angry, cross. Amy. Yeah. This is my angry face. So, yeah, I was a bit cross about that study. Um, wow. And it, um, it made me want to put it in the context of the wider research as well, because, yes. as we know, we can't ever draw conclusions based on one study. No. Even so if you, it had been the most perfectly conducted study in the whole world, so which you, it clearly you, isn't. you went and dived a bit deeper as well, didn't you? I did. I did a little bit. So, something which I found which I thought was very interesting because I think it's something which parents who are interested in reading around sleep around babies may have come across in the last sort of year or so is the book by Emily Oster the American economist Mm -hmm. and she did a book on parenting and roughly the, the premise was that when she had her child she decided to look into the research around it and things. And she's really been sort of publicising this book along the lines of, I've done all the research for you, so this is not some off-the-shelf book. I've actually looked into all the impacts and I'm not explaining how to do it, but I'm just saying 
this is the evidence behind what you might be doing and mm. things. Um, and it's honestly, I know, I, I, I know, you know, it was one of these with my husband sort of heard of it and was like, oh, I've heard, you know, heard this economy speaking about how actually breastfeeding doesn't make any difference and things. And my ears have perked up and been like, oh. And um, and lo and behold, she said some stuff about sleep as well. Mm-hmm. And so we found this article from the New York Times, which she wrote um, when publicising her book. And um, she talks about how yeah, paediatricians often recommend sleep training and many parents do it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, I think this is an American America. model where mm-hmm. they are going to the paediatrician regularly and things. Yeah. But what really caught my eye was how she then goes on to talk about, you know, about how you go onto the internet, you'll find many articles detailing the extensive long-term damage sleep training will do to your child. Really going for the horrific kind of, oh my God, there's a whole alarmist thing of you can break your child forever doing sleep training. Yeah. And, you know, at its core, concern for the opponents of Cry It Out is that your baby will feel abandoned. And then talks about how this idea comes from 1980s Romania with the orphanages mm-hmm. and them having very little human contact for months and even years. Mm-hmm. And then going, well, this is absurd. Sleep training methods don't leave the infant for months without human contact. Well, no, and actually yeah. that's not what the research says. Mm-hmm. And it was quite funny because when we were discussing this earlier and it's always like, you know, you, you can name that research study in five so I started talking about, oh, yes, you mentioned an Australian study of 328 mothers <laughs> whose seven-month-old babies were having trouble sleeping. And I said, oh, yes, which... you're talking about his cocktail 2007 because I've actually got that on my list to discuss. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, her take on that study is very different from... From mine. Well, your take is mm. on it. Um, Shockingly. And it's just that interesting thing where although she is academically trained to look at research... She still, because she hasn't got knowledge in that field, she didn't know what good quality research in that she should be looking at for the or how to properly put into context the research findings. I think, yeah, I think that's exactly it. So there's a big problem in that it's not looking at the methodological flaws with those studies. There is definitely that. There is a point which is that we don't have good high quality trial data from randomized controlled trials which tells us that cry it out sleep methods cause harm yeah okay we don't have trials that show us that we absolutely don't and even the biggest proponent of attachment parenting co-sleeping bed sharing couldn't tell you that we do because we don't so it's true to say that we don't have that data um However, I think by saying that there is a huge body of evidence that says it's fine, I think that is just not true as well. There is a small body of evidence which claims to say it's fine. However, there are a lot of methodological flaws with that evidence. Yeah. Okay. I was and say, also, not, not as by saying that, what you're doing is ignoring the big body of evidence on infant brain development, attachment, um, the whole philosophy of infant mental health, which is now very well established, which we do have reams and reams and reams of evidence on, on how cortisol affects the brain, on how responsive parenting impacts cortisol, on how serve and return interactions, responsiveness, synchrony in parenting, how all of those things 
add up to brain changes and attachment changes and behavioural and emotional changes in the child as they grow. We have a good body of evidence on that. So while we don't have it specifically applying to cry it out sleep methodology, you could argue that that research, that body of evidence that we have about attachment and responsiveness and sensitivity all applies directly to cry it out sleep methods because if you are doing a cry it out sleep method, you are doing an unresponsive form of parenting. Yeah. That is what you're doing. If you remember the still face video, yes. you know the tronic, oh God, tronic video, still yes. face phenomenon. Yeah. If anyone's not watched that, go Google tronic still face phenomenon. Um, and there's a YouTube video that you need to watch. It's brilliant. Um, and when you're doing the controlled crying approach of um, camping out or um, whatever they called it in the other one, where you just leave the chair graduated extinction where you leave the chair in the room and gradually move away disappearing chair routine that is the still face phenomena that is what you're doing yeah so what that's what it would look like and feel like to the child to the child unarguably that is what it is so while we don't have a a research trial or a, a high quality systematic review which provides us with evidence on cry it out sleep training and demonstrates pouring outcome variables as a result we do have a big body of evidence in the neurodevelopment field and the attachment field about similar techniques that look and feel the same to the child not associated with sleep and the impact that those things have yeah so you know a few things really firstly the research that she's citing to support cry out sleep training is flawed in numerous ways but also it ignores a big body of evidence against it. Yeah. I think it's hard to say if something is so philosophically different from the accepted scientific view. Yeah. I think you have to question that. Yes. Well, it's interesting the way she talks about opponents of the cry out as if they're opposing it without having any Mm. argument to put across, no research, no evidence, when actually there's a heck of a lot of evidence well I mean you said that in her article she talks about one particular study that proponents always pull out and I said is it the cortisol study the middle mist yes yeah yeah, exactly so this is probably one of the only um RCT studies that we do have which is about cry it out sleep methods right um and it's done well, it's one of the only ones that we have that is conducted by um, somebody who is actually anti-cry it out. Yeah. So one of the problems that we have with the body of literature that's out there at the moment is um, that the people that are doing the research are very firmly in the cry it out is fine camp. Yeah. Okay. So some of the there's there's design flaws and methodological flaws that are in line with that way of thinking. Yeah. Um you know, in accepting quiet out, sorry, in accepting disturbed infant sleep as a problem, for example, in the first place. Um, and the designs of the study are in line with those biases. But what we don't have is research from the other side of the debate. Yeah. So because those researchers believe that it would be ethically unfair to do that research, so we don't really have yeah. it. So for that reason, we don't have a good kind of um 
example or if you like yeah. of data hard data so this middle miss study is one of the few that we do have of that and this is about cortisol so some people might have heard of this study it's quite a famous one um and it is um about asynchrony in mother and infant cortisol levels so they did it was like a um residential setting and they had wow. nurses look after the babies overnight oh wow so what the nurses were doing cry it out or... yeah oh my god yeah so parents actually signed up to have their children yeah and how young were the babies 25 mother infant dyads infants aged four to ten months Jeez. mean was 6.5 months yeah oh my word but remembering that that is the average age that we saw yeah so this may not be massively different from what people i mean the big difference is that it's a nurse attending to them rather than yeah. a parent obviously and i'm imagining with your ibclc hat on you're spotting some flaws in this well yeah experimental I mean... design <laughs> Yeah, uh, <laughs> I Just, mean, uh, I think I think we're we're not going to mention Lindsay Hookway in this because she deserves her own her own sort one of podcast. Yeah. I think I think you've got maybe mentioning her in a little bit, but yeah, um, I think we'll get a very different perspective from her. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they did. They did. Uh, the program was designed to extinguish infant signaling for attention during transition to nighttime sleep and to increase infant self-settling both at initial nighttime sleep and when waking during the night. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. That just sounds so harsh. Goals were to help mothers teach infants to self-settle at nap time and nighttime transitions to sleep and to resettle themselves at nighttime wakings. Um so they instituted an unmodified extinction sleep training program which is as you remember unmodified extinction sleep training program what that means is put the baby in a crib close the door and ignore them until morning oh. quite literally that's what it means yeah um yeah all transitions to sleep nurses and mothers would attend to by preparing infants for transition to sleep by changing feeding and other nap time or bedtime activities following these activities infants were placed to sleep in their own crib in a room separate from their mothers once placed in the crib for sleeping infants were required to self-soothe and self-settle although mothers were present on the unit and were aware of their infant's transition to sleep inclusive of any signaling of distress um, mothers did not attend to infants nighttime care while the infants were learning to self-settle so they would know the baby was distressed but yeah. not oh my word yeah oh i know right so so that's what they that's the study that's what they did rightly or wrongly <laughs> they got ethical clearance for this and it wasn't decades ago either it was 2012 jeez mm -hmm. so that's what they did um and the the reason the parents had to be aware of the infant's distress signalling read screaming as if they are being tortured in another room the parents had to be aware of that because the, the point of the study was to do salivary sampling yeah and what they did was they did a sample of the initiate the saliva at the initiation of the sleep routine so before they started the sleep routine and then 20 minutes post infant sleep onset Right. Okay, so after the baby's asleep, they then do another salivary sample yeah. of the mum and the baby. And then they, attest they tested them for cortisol levels, okay? And they found 
That How would they do that without waking the baby? <laughs> I know, yeah. That was actually, interestingly, one of the main reasons why people dropped out of the study was that parents said, you're going to wake her after you've just spent 45 minutes with her screaming, oh screaming God. herself to sleep, you're then going to stick a cotton bud in her mouth. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what they found was that... As expected, significant positive association between the mother and infant's cortisol levels was found. Okay, obviously. No, really? Shock, yeah. However... Oh God, you mean, you mean you're indicating that was quite a stressful thing? Yeah, yeah, for both. No. Well, no, okay, so what it doesn't tell you is in comparison to what they would normally be doing, what are their cortisol levels doing. Yeah. It doesn't tell you that they're more stressed by this procedure than they would be if their mum was cuddling them and snuggling them and doing lots of lovely things, okay? It doesn't tell you that. You can't mm-hmm. read that. That isn't what no. it says. It says that their cortisol levels were equal, like were in sync with each other. So when the infant's levels were high, so were the mother's. Yeah? yeah. After That's on day one, okay? However, by the end... By the end of the by the end of the study on day three, when they did this, what they found was that as the the baby's behavioural signals dropped off, so they stopped crying as much. Yeah. The mother's right. cortisol levels went down. Right. Because their baby's not crying as much. However, what happened to the infant's cortisol levels? They stayed the same. So they weren't crying, but their cortisol levels were the same as they were with when they were had been crying. Yeah. But the mother's cortisol levels went down. So the reason this is so important, such an important piece of research, is that all of the work in attachment theory around um, reciprocity in signalling in the infant-mother relationship is all to do with synchrony. So the parent and the mum and the baby are in sync. Yeah. And with attachment research, that is a really important thing for developing a healthy attachment relationship is mother and baby being in sync with each other. And okay. what this effectively achieved and demonstrates without shadow of a doubt, there was asynchrony between the mum's cortisol levels and the baby's cortisol levels after a cryer out method. So that okay. that is why that research is mentioned so frequently, because that is an important thing to have demonstrated. As far as the yeah. attachment literature is concerned, that's an important thing to have shown. Well, as I say, because it indicates a complete... Mismatch. Being, or out of sync. Yeah, with, exactly. And so how can you be responsive if you're not in sync? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, Amy, when we were talking about um, Emily Oster and I said about how I'd found the article and things, um, you did some amazing kind of mind reading and literally (laughs) you were, I mean, I've known of people being able to identify a song by sort of a bit of the first line or the general gist of what the song is, but I, with a really vague reference to it, you named the Hiscock study as being (laughs) the one that she was talking about, which I have to say blew my socks off. Um, And you were saying about how this is like a real classic... Yeah. Um, if there is such a thing as the the classics in Quiet Out that we need to reference and look there at, is. there really is. <laughs> there really is, Jenny. Um, yeah, no, it sounded more impressive than it was, to be honest, because this is the study that everyone always quotes if you're a proponent of cry out sleep methodologies. So it would okay. be remiss of me to have done a deep dive into the research and then record a podcast <laughs> episode on it without talking about his coquetal 2007. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, here's Coquetel 2007, and the title of their study is Improving Infant Sleep and Maternal Mental Health, a Cluster Randomised Trial. 
Okay. Wow. There's a lot of words in there. There so is. So we're, we're looking at them th- feeling that they can improve baby sleep, mental health, and it's a randomised... Yeah, it's an RCT. How? Because surely the parents are going to have known what they were being asked to do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So... Okay, so obviously there's quite a lot in this study, that I'm, and I'm, as you're not going to be surprised to hear me say that, I'm going to pick it to pieces just a little bit, okay? Okay, But just to give it. you an overview of what they did, okay? So this has been conducted in Australia. Um, it's done using, they have maternal and child health centres over there. So they have mm-hmm. um, like clusters of maternal and child health centres um, in Melbourne. That's where this has been conducted. And they recruited 328 mothers um, essentially, they did a questionnaire and they at seven months and they asked the mums, "Does your child have a sleep problem?" Okay. Okay. And they only re- they only took into the study the people that said yes, my child has a sleep problem at seven oh, months. Oh crumbs! Okay. okay, so we're already tackling issues around parental expectation, parental resilience. Yes. Okay. So these are parents who are reporting a sleep problem, okay? Um, <laughs> now, obviously, like, as we've looked into from some of the review studies and other parts of the literature, when they're saying sleep problem, that's very much mother-defined sleep problem in this case. Yeah. So there are clinical diagnoses for sleep problems in children, but, um, you know, as one of the review papers that I can link to in the um, blurb of this article points out, um, none of these cry it out studies ever, none of the, none of the sleep problems in these cry it out studies that they're trying to solve meet the threshold for those, um, diagnostic criteria. So we're not talking about real sleep problems here in the sense of, when I say, I don't, that sounded very dismissive and I don't mean it to sound dismissive. I just mean they're not clinical sleep problems as in diagnosable, um, you know, DSM type sleep problems. These are, you know, mums feel that their child's sleep is somehow not good enough. I think we've said about it so many times we've looked at other things that unfortunately these sort of parental reporting is such a poor research method, isn't it? And particularly with sleep because because firstly we know that societal expectations of sleep are not necessarily in line with baby's biological normal. Um, So we're facing that challenge to start with. And also we know from research done by Helen Ball of Basis that um, parents' um, reports of their child's sleep are actually often wildly inaccurate when they measure yeah. them and compare them with actigraphy, I think that's how you pronounce it, when okay. they, you know, attach a little oh, measure yes. to the baby and they actually measure yeah. the baby's sleep. Oh, that's it, because up in, up in Durham they've got the baby's, the infant sleep that's lab, the haven't they, where they have them co-sleeping and yes, sleeping exactly. over, so yeah. When they've done that research, they've found that actually expectations of sleep and, you know, actual reality of sleep and reported sleep is that often very different things. So yeah. in particular with sleep, we do have good evidence that that's not necessarily an accurate thing. So, right. okay, but let's, we're starting from that start point. We're yes. already getting into yeah. this critique before we even talked about the study. Sorry. Um, no, it's fine. <laughs> Easily done. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, their main outcome measures were, yeah, maternal report of infant sleep problem, depression symptoms, um, and they did use the EPDS for this. So kudos to them. They didn't just say, okay. to them, do you feel sad? They did actually use a very good <laughs> measure. 
Yeah, um, although, I mean, that has come in. I mean, it's a different podcast entirely, but there has been oh, a yeah. fair bit of criticism for that. It's no, by sure. no means an ideal scale, is it? Absolutely not, no. I'm not saying it's perfect in any way, but it's a little bit like, you know, when we looked at the last study, the, the one that we did a deep dive into, um, and they used behavioural development and their measures of behavior development yes. were bizarre measure they've created themselves this yes. is different from that you know at mm. least this is you know if you were asking someone how would you measure yeah. postnatal yeah. depression the epds is a fairly standard yeah. measure of that so at least it's not a random pulled out of the sky bizarre measure yeah. they did also do another measure of um mental and physical health right. called the sf12 which i'd never heard of um so that's an in addition to the EPDS, but you know if we talk about the EPDS, that's probably um, they weren't they weren't wildly different in terms of the results no. across the two measures. Yeah. So um, okay, and they they did those when the infants were ten and twelve months old. Okay, okay, so they yeah, so they did those are the measures, and then basically what they did was um, they the way they randomized it was they randomly allocated these uh, maternal and child health centres that they have in Melbourne um, mm-hmm. to two different arms of the study, either the intervention arm or the control arm. So effectively, right. I mean, it, when you say randomisation, I suppose it's not randomisation in the sense of they allocated a random number to each. It's not true randomisation. Um, no. But it is, they've tried to split them down in some way. And in the way they've done the study is they've, the intervention was to do a training um, with the inter, with the nurses from the intervention arm um, training set, the health centres. Okay. So they took half the nurses and they gave them um two two and a half hour training sessions mm-hmm. um which incorporated didactic teaching written information role play and troubleshooting common problems okay yeah and then they the mums in the intervention group yeah. were advised by letter that their nurse yeah. was trained to provide yeah. advice to help manage their infant's sleep okay and then at the we, first we'd routine we'd visit hope. which yeah. in um in this case was at the eight month they have an eight month um well child visit right um, they those nurses elicited the nature of the sleep problem identified solutions and wrote an individualized sleep management plan with the mother okay, okay. they gave them two handouts which talked about normal sleep patterns at six to twelve months and sleep associations and their causal role in sleep problems Interesting right. with your IBCLC hat on there. Um, yes. They then had a handout. Well, I'm, on... I'm also wondering how. Yeah. I mean, it just wasn't randomised, was it? Because even the nurses knew whether they're in the intervention group or not. I mean, the thing that's coming to mind immediately so blind, is, Hawthor- is Hawthorne effect. Because yes. I mean, it's yeah, like, did these point. nurses not have any contact with each other ever? Were there no kind of. I, I, I don't know. It's it's a curious thing. I'm thinking of like I think I'm probably thinking small scale. So I'm thinking like within our teams with the range of clinics we would run, and you yeah. still have those those guys who are running the clinics meeting and speaking and things. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, yeah. What they're saying is that um, roughly the children are allocated to one of these centres. So in order to try and keep the intervention and control arms separately, they trained yeah. the nurses in that centre. Yes, um, yeah. 
you know, that's what they're saying. Mm. Um, but you do make a good point in that it isn't blinded. So with a randomised control trial, you'd ideally look for blinding. So the, yes. the mothers or the nurses wouldn't know what, what arm of the study they're in. But obviously, uh-huh. in a study like this, you can't really, you can't, that's not something that would be possible to do. Um, no. So yeah, so they gave them handouts, they gave them training, and they did a what they called a individualised sleep management plan with the mother, okay? Yeah. And in that, as part of that sleep management plan, mums were offered the choice of two behavioural interventions, controlled crying, where uh-huh. parents respond to their infant's cry at increasing time intervals, okay? So that's essentially a modified extinction technique, if we're using yeah. the language that we've been using so far. Yes, um, yeah. Or second, the second option was camping out. Yes, that's another modified right. extinction technique, but it's essentially yeah. the one where they sit in the room the whole time yes um, but ignore them yeah yeah um and then mums maintained daily sleep diaries until the follow-up appointment two weeks later to facilitate recognition of sleep patterns and improvements and to help set further goals uh-huh and then they did questionnaires to talk about uh, over the last two weeks has your baby's sleep generally been a problem for you yes or no okay so I mean, that's their main measure of sleep problem is that question. Over the last two weeks, has your baby sleep generally be a problem for you? And I've got mixed feelings about this measure, Jenny. Yes. So, obviously, it doesn't tell us anything about sleep duration, wake duration, wake frequency. It doesn't tell us any of the things that, like, objectively, it doesn't tell us anything objective. But then, in another way, perhaps it is more relevant because generally when we see mums, what we're interested in is not actually how long the baby is sleeping for because, in general, it's not the baby's health or their actual sleep that we're worried about. It's generally mums coping with that, okay? So if there's an intervention which will improve the way mum feels she's coping, Uh then perhaps that's a relevant outcome measure in itself, you know? So, you know, there's a point there. Um. The problem in this study is that the variable of interest that we've got here might well be affected, okay? It might be confound it might be like a confounding factor that they haven't taken into account. Because for example, the intervention group are told nurses will come round and they're trained to help you with your infant's sleep, okay? Yeah. And you think you've already said that you think your child has a problem, that's why you've been included in this study. Whether they yeah. actually do or not, whether this is just them exhibiting normal patterns, you know, we don't know. But you've no. said you think this is a problem. And you're told this nurse is going to come round and they're going to help you with your infant sleep. If you've got someone trying to help you with their sleep, maybe you're more likely to then report later that it's their sleep's not a, much of a problem anymore. Mm. You know, there might be an element of wanting to conform to the expectations of the experiment. Yeah. Or you might have an improvement in your attitude towards your baby's sleep simply as a result of having a kind empathic helper coming yeah. in listening and talking to you and exactly. helping you you know supporting you um yeah it doesn't necessarily mean and that's that might be fine okay but it's only fine if the actual intervention that you've done has no harmful impact yeah so if you're, the intervention you've done is a cry it out methodology, you could argue that a placebo effect, which is effectively what we're talking about, yeah, is fine if there's no harm in the placebo. But if the placebo is harmful, then that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, so that's what so they did. I, 
Yeah, and so overall they seem to suggest that the cry out did help. So, their findings but... then. Yeah. So, first of all, um, they used the EPDS and they claim that their intervention improved parents' mental health. Okay, that's the right. statement they're making. So they, uh-huh. when they measured the EPDS, they found that intervention mothers had lower mean EPDS scores than controls did at the 10-month measure and the 12-month measure. And that is a significant difference, the EPDS between the intervention group and the control group. Yeah. Significantly lower. Okay. Um, fewer intervention than control mothers reported poor sleep quality at 12 months, and that is a significant difference. And yeah. fewer reported um, insufficient sleep at 12 months, and that is a significant difference as well. Okay, so they found significant differences that they were looking for, exactly the significant differences that they were looking for, ultimately. Yeah. Um, now, as you you know, will be expecting me to say, it's not quite as simple as that. No, no, not at all. <laughs> well, it's interesting in that, from what you're saying, there was no measure showing how many of the parents were actually following to the letter the cry-out techniques. Interesting you should say that, Jen, because out of 174 parents who were allocated to the intervention group... Yeah, only so these were the guys... So hang on, just to run through the intervention group, sorry, I have the no, brain capacity yeah. of a goldfish at the moment. No, that's good, that's good. The, inter- the intervention group are the guys who were dealing with the nurses who'd had additional training in how yeah. to help them tackle sleep problems make plans yeah but were being directed to cry out methods yes so some of them were not all of them were directed no. to cry out methods they okay. were given an individualized sleep plan and the option yeah. of either um a modified extinction going oh, in yes. out or a camping out yeah thing right and they Sorry. were also given a load of handouts a load of information yeah a nice empathic chat with a nurse who yeah. as you've been told is there to help you fix your child's sleep problem okay okay the control arm had a nice empathic chat with a nurse but you've received no letter telling you that they're there for your child's sleep problem yeah so whether the control arm talked about sleep or not we don't know and whether they right. did any interventions we don't know we don't know but the okay. nurses didn't receive the training that this no. that this study put on okay okay so and so the you've spotted the initial problem which is that out of 174 allocated to the intervention group only 100 of them reported receiving the intervention uh, so 40% of the treatment group actually declined the intervention right okay and yet still ended up with better edps results yeah. and interesting so, yeah so we also have no idea what the control group did so no in a society where cry it out sleep training is considered to be fairly common quite normal um and lots of families do do it yeah there is a strong chance that at least some of the control group also did cry it out sleep methodologies so there's no measure <laughs> of whether they did or not so we can't exclude that as a confounding variable so obviously as you know with a randomized control trial we absolutely have to as a minimum be able to rule out the fact that the variable of interest in this case the sleep training yeah is the same across both groups it has to be different in your intervention arm to your control arm otherwise what's the point it's it's, you're not randomizing you're not controlling anything yeah no um so yeah so the control group what they did that's an issue 
Okay. Um, and there was a follow-up as well, you said, that there was a, a there study... Was. Uh, yeah, there was. Th- th- they're not the only problems with this. So there's just a couple of other things I wanted to mention before oh, we sorry. get on to the five-year follow-up. But Go yeah, we it. will talk about the five-year follow-up. Um, the EPDS that they're using to measure depression, so they're saying that they're, it significantly reduced mental health depression, yeah? Uh-huh. Um, which it did, okay. They had a significantly different EPDS st- score, okay? However... Right there was no significant difference in whether or not they had a diagnosis. So they counted a diagnosis being a score of more than nine. So the mums that were depressed were still depressed. Interventional control, it didn't make any difference. The mums that weren't depressed clinically, still weren't depressed clinically, interventional control didn't make any difference. They found a reduction in the mean score by around one point difference. So on the EPDS, that would mean the difference between a score of 10 or 11 or, you know, 20, right. 21. It, it's that, yeah. that, that, that amount of difference um, at 10 months and just over one point difference at 12 months. So that is statistically significant because they've got big numbers in their study. But would it be considered clinically significant is another question. Mm. If you said to a mum, I'm going to give you an intervention that's going to improve your depression... Um, It's going to involve, you know, a week of leaving your child to scream in their cot on their own. Um, It's going to be very distressing for everyone. And it's going to reduce your depression from from 19 on the EPDS to 18 on the EPDS. (laughs) Would we consider that to be a vast success? No. No. Okay. One more. So one more thing. Okay. Um, Yeah. Oh, on the mental health, there is an interesting interaction effect that they found, okay, with the baseline EPDS score. So the score that they did, um, the EPDS score at baseline at seven months before they did any intervention, um, did have an impact on the effect of cry it out intervention on the reduction of the EPDS. So basically, for women who are already clinically depressed at seven months, there might be a greater benefit of cry it out in terms of their depression at 10 months. Although they weren't able to replicate that effect at 12 months and it wasn't relevant to their reported sleep quality or duration. Okay. So it's all a bit complicated, Jen, but essentially... What we're finding here is that they're making the statement, our intervention improved parents' mental health. But as we can see, when we actually look at the stats and we take a dive into the numbers, it's not that simple. No. So any person who is quoting this study to say, cry it out, improves mental health, it's not that simple. This study did not show that. No. You cannot claim that. It shows a lack of understanding of the or epds and things doesn't it really yeah and people just reading the study and taking what the authors say to be gospel rather than actually understanding the numbers yeah yeah um they also had they did the question does your child have a sleep problem um after the intervention at 10 months and at 12 months They've done this intervention, which is supposed to be helping the children's sleep problems, okay? Yeah. So obviously 100% of them had it before they started. Yeah. After they've done the intervention, 56% at 10 months still said they'd got a sleep problem. Yeah, that's so, not good. And, and at 12 months, 39%. Those yeah. numbers are still pretty high, especially considering 
you know, we've said about it being self-report and perhaps yeah. being confounded by the fact that they know that's what the nurse is there to help them with, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, so not an amazing study. No. There is okay. a commentary on this study, which if you were interested and you had um, somebody asking you questions about this study, um, Middle Miss, who is the person who did the study on cortisol and asynchrony that we've yes, yeah. been talking about on this episode, she has done a commentary on this now. I love a commentary, as you know. <laughs> We've talked about commentaries before and I've said that, that I think I described them to you as intellectual, no, academic bitch slapping. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so so if you're when... a bit of academic bitch slapping, then Amy is the one to show you where to go. Absolutely. They are like my entertainment when I'm doing this research. So essentially this is when they've published in a journal... And then another author, who generally is eminent in the field, responds in that journal. So the commentary comes up immediately below within the journal. So they've got the so paper it's almost and like so roughly it's the it's the academic version of going below the line on a Daily Mail article. Exactly yeah? that. Yeah. Exactly right. that. Um, her. Um, her. Okay. So I'm just going to the headings on these commentaries. The first one is unethical and unscientific conclusions ignore how infants are harmed. Okay. <laughs> Second one is sleep training not harmful, methodological concerns question conclusion. So if anyone's wanting to dig deeper into the reliability of the conclusions drawn in this paper, then I would absolutely look at those um, yeah. You know those commentaries, um, um, and they're actually commentaries on the five year. I'm realizing now they are commentaries on the five year follow up, um, which we're going to talk about now. So they okay. did this, and then they did a follow up five years later. Right. Okay. So following the same families research. again. Yeah. So Price et al. 2012. Yeah. So they've done yeah. a five year follow up of these same families. Okay. And they are How... claiming. So how many did they manage to find from the original trial? Because I can imagine there being quite a uh, dropout rate. Yeah, so they tracked down 69%, so 225 families they managed to follow up. And Okay, that's not bad. Yeah, not bad. Um, they found it no evidence of difference between intervention and control families for any of the outcomes they measured. So children's emotional scores, conduct behaviour, sleep problems, sleep habits, parent and child report psychosocial parent and child reported psychosocial functioning, chronic stress, child parent closeness, conflict, global relationships, disinhibited attachment and parental depression, anxiety, stress, or authoritative parenting. They found no difference between the control groups and the intervention group. They right. say that is because sleep training has no impact on any of those factors. Knowing what we know about the original study, I disagree with them. And I think that's because five years after you did an intervention on some of the intervention group and possibly some of the control group as well and the yeah. intervention wasn't very clear and yeah. we don't know how many of them actually did it and we don't know how many yeah. of the control group also did it. Yeah. I think what they've shown is that other things are more important than what you did yes. <laughs> in the five years that have intervened. Okay. So, you know, I don't think... It, ultimately, the five-year follow-up is only ever as good as the original article. 
Yes. And the original article in this case... Was very flawed. Was not great. Yeah. I see. So they also don't use a good measure of attachment at all. In this study, they interestingly measure salivary cortisol, which we talked about already. Um, But when do they measure the salivary cortisol, Jen? Do they measure it when Uh, they're doing the cry out? um, Oh, I'm guessing not, especially five years down the road. Exactly. Five years afterwards, they've found no difference in salivary (laughs) cortisol. Well, of course you haven't. Why did you even try? Oh, God. Of course there's no difference in salivary cortisol five years after you did the cry out training. Mm. Anyway. (laughs) There's no clear benefits evidenced by the study of the cry out. So they've just found no difference. And obviously, you know, we don't know what impact this has had potentially or hasn't had because no. the study was too flawed initially to show us. So yeah, they're the two. They're the two main things. This this Hiscock et al. two thousand and seven is the original study, and then Price et al. twenty twelve is the five year follow up. And they're the two studies that the cry it out proponents use as evidence to say it's fine. So yeah. hopefully, you know, people can go away and read the studies themselves and I'll link yeah. to them and also read the commentaries and, um, you know, form your own opinion of them. Um, but yes. that's my view. I mean, in terms of the wider research context on this, um, there was a review which I can link to, which did sleep interventions not to six months and it concluded there were no pro- improved outcomes. So that's basically saying below six yeah. months. There's no improvement in outcomes, which, yeah. to be honest, health visitors yeah. would never be recommending doing any anything like this below six months of age anyway. We'd hope, we'd hope, yeah. So, um, and so, I mean, is there middle ground? Because, I mean, obviously we do see parents who are really feeling mm. the effects and want to be loving and responsive, but at the same time, for their mm. own health, need to have some sort of routine. And we know, yeah, you know, we have mums who already have existing health issues who they know that sleep helps with yeah. that what what can we recommend where where can we yeah. look to for guidance for the, those yeah guys? so really good point um and there are two potential middle way options that i'm going to link to the articles um one of them is ball et al 2020 now this is helen ball Ooh. I was going to say ball rings a bell. Yeah. That's the um, basis. Exactly. Isn't it? Yeah. So she's the co-founder right. of Basis, which is the Babies and Infants Sleep Information Source, um, and she's which also the... a really prolific researcher on infant sleep. She did yeah. the infant sleep study. She did the sleeping like a baby. Well, they've literally research. Yeah, they've literally got a sleep lab up at Durham, yeah, Durham University, yeah. haven't they? And this That's is like her. if if Basis isn't ringing a bell. Um, some guys might remember it as ISIS. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they changed the <laughs> name. So used to be used to be infant sleep information source, but obviously um had to change their name. Yeah, yeah. Because, so she's uh, proposed a ISIS new alternative. ISIS came to mean something very different. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um. So she's proposed a new alternative, and that is basically based on possums which is an australian um sleep intervention for parents um and it looks at kind of balancing meeting the parents needs for sleeps but without ignoring the infant's cues so um it's hopefully helping parents to feel happier with their baby's sleep um and to cope better effectively um and so how does it work what are the key things that they do 
So the actual intervention itself, what they say about it is the intervention helps parents recalibrate their expectations of infant sleep development, encourages responsive parenting and experimentation to meet their infant's needs and offers parents strategies for supporting the development of their baby's biological sleep regulators and promote their own well-being and teaches parents to manage negative thinking and anxiety that can impede sleep using the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy. Yeah. And then they have a discussion tool, a 14-page illustrated booklet called Sleep Baby and You, um, which that's what they've been field testing. Um, and, and they've found good good feedback from practitioners and parents on that materials. So ultimately, this is looking like an, a kind of an empathic... Um, intervention supporting parents well-being and responsive caregiving you know learning about normal infant sleep and helping parents to kind of manage and cope and you know calling on those kind of resources in the parent really to help them meet the child's needs overnight yeah so it's a much more kind of responsive but it but it it is an intervention so if you had a parent that was really struggling and that's based off of their research which ultimately is showing that it's about it's what we were talking about earlier really the parent's perception of the child's sleep and that may be completely independent and unrelated to what the child's actually doing overnight yes yeah so looking through it looks a lot more it's interesting how it is a lot more based around managing parental expectations and improving knowledge of what biologically normal is yeah exactly um, rather than even teaching them how to deal with the sleep as such it's, yeah, well, um, it's, it's i think correctly identifying the problem yeah because all the, yeah. the issue with all of this cry it out interventions is that it's placing the problem on the baby so it's the baby here that has a sleep problem yeah you know, that's their it's position. interesting looking through it and there's a quote from mum saying about um it really helped me. One chat to her with the leaflet took a huge weight off my shoulders. Mm. I've stopped trying to fix things that aren't broken. Yeah, that's it. I just I just needed someone to tell me that my baby's routine is normal and to stop worrying all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a kind of actually responding to the problem being society teaching yeah. parents incorrect and completely unrealistic yeah. things and setting them up to fail, you know, as we've yeah. said. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that's that's one option. That's the ball et al. There is another one as well, which is Middle Miss. So the same person that we've talked about a few times. And she has proposed um, a second alternative. Now, this one, they've, sh- they've done a study. 2017, the study was, and I'll link to it in the... Um, in the blurb and the study is response-based sleep intervention helping infants sleep without making them cry and in their study they demonstrated an increase in total sleep time and that was by they measured it Uh Um, so it was a residential program and there was a sleep sleep wake log which um, mothers and nurses maintained and then mothers continued in their homes for a nine-day period after the intervention was completed. Um, so it wasn't actigraphy data, but it was a sleep-wake log. So it's, it's more reliable than just asking them what, how much did they sleep, was it good or not. Um, 
and they found an increase in total sleep time, but no crying. So this is for, you know, if you've got a parent that's saying, this is all very well and good, but actually, you know, sure, it would be wonderful if we lived in a society which didn't expect this of my baby. But unfortunately, yeah. I have to go out to work and I'm tired. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And I actually do need to just increase. As much as you're saying this is all normal and that's lovely, yeah. but that doesn't help me. So this is for no. the minority of parents for whom that won't be the solution, I suppose. Um, yeah. And this is about teaching responsive, soothing and cues-based um, methods of responding to the baby's sleep, okay? Yeah. So they taught parents, ultimately what they were teaching is paying attention to infant cues. Wow. Overnight. And they did yeah. find a, a big difference. Consistent sleep preparation, so a consistent routine. Um, parents encouraged to listen to the infant and often care in response to infant's communication. So guiding parents away from intrusive or non-contingent care. So what they're saying is that there may be some care that parents are offering overnight, which is not yeah. actually necessarily de- like needed, so that the care should be responsive to the baby's needs rather than yeah. based on what the parents are assuming they need. Yeah? Yeah. So it's to reduce that kind of intrusive or non-contingent care. Um and they say, in the event infants cry, parents are coached to respond with low-level support care and build it over a short period of time, e.g. no longer than 15 to 30 seconds. Okay? Wow. So they start out with the lowest level of supportive care, which is quiet verbal comforting, then stroking the infant, patting the mattress, or other low-level calming responses. And then, if if that doesn't help, then they step it up a, a a stage um then which includes cuddling or feeding to comfort right so they they start with the lowest the minimum yeah needed and build yeah. it up slowly um and they found that um this type of attending and responding over time provides the parent and infant predictability of contingent parent response to infant cues so it ensures the infant's not left to cry, but rather is offered comforting when they're unable to calm down. By encouraging the parent to offer contingent care, tired parents experience how the cues of the infant lead the care, which ultimately results in calm sleep transitioning and longer sleep hours. So because mm. the parents are in sync with their baby... Yeah. So, and don't forget, this is the same author that did the um, cortisol study, the asynchrony study. So, and, yes. and this is actually very consistent with a lot of the attachment research, which is all about, um, you know, those positive results that we see in terms of infant neurology um, yeah. and infant attachment and parent-infant relationships and all the positive outcomes for children that we see later in life um, are often contingent on synchrony so a match a match up between what the parent is yeah. providing and what the infant is saying they need you know that real ability to tune into your baby yeah. and i suppose over time it is that thing because they're better tuned in the babies know that they're being understood more and yeah. so it's just it becomes a virtuous circle doesn't it instead of a vicious one yes exactly um so and they found so total sleep time so this is what they actually found, significantly higher um, on infants' total sleep time after return home, significantly higher than at pre-admission, okay? 
Um, it significantly increased from day one to day two, day two to day three, and day three to home. Wow. And I'm trying to look for the actual amount of time. It's from 7.2 to 13. Now, I feel like that's hours. <laughs> yeah. Which is really impressive. So, yeah, so it actually describes the total sleep time um, from pre-admission to home, and there's a graph that demonstrates it. Um, I can't actually see anywhere um, how that is measured in terms of what actual um, scale is being used uh -huh. in that. Um, but I think it's literally counting hours. So, uh -huh. because it's a sleep log, they're literally tracking hours i will double check this okay and if it's yeah. not then um i'll make that i'll i'll record a little bit that goes on the end of this episode to tell yes. you that that isn't the case yeah. okay so i will Fair look enough. into this so if you don't hear a little message from me saying then what we've discovered is that it is hours okay wow in which case what they did was pre-admission they found 7.2 hours and by home it was 13 hours total sleep time so in that's 24 not all hours in one go. no that's obviously fragmented but yeah 13 hours from 7.2 hours to 13 hours if well, that's hours think... that's really impressive isn't it if that's hours then no wonder they weren't sleeping well to begin with because they must have been severely overtired very tired you'd have thought yeah well i'm not sure about overtired but um I mean, mm. 7.2 hours is not a lot for an overnight no. sleep of a baby, you know. Exactly. Oh, I don't think I've said exactly. how old these babies are, have I? Okay. Um, average um, 7.16 months, age right. range between 4 and 11 months. Well, seven, 7 hours for over 24 hours is awful for that age. Um, oh, and um, I don't know, no, no, this might just be overnight. Right, okay. So they may well be getting significantly more than that in the day. Okay. Um, I'm going to double check what the actual measure of this is, but it seems to be hours. That seems to be wow. what they're describing. Okay. Um, and even if it isn't, it is a significant increase. Whatever measure that is, 7.2 to 13. Yeah. You know, it's not like one point on the EPDS. No. Like the previous study was finding. No. So that is a significant increase. So this could provide an alternative as well, this middle miss yeah. option. Um, Every so often we do a podcast where I think, my God, I'm going to need to listen through this a few times <laughs> after we've released it to properly get a handle on it. And I think this is one of those ones because I feel like there is just so much that we've covered in this. Thank you, Amy, for doing the deep dive and things because oh, I think you've managed to do it far better than... I would be able to. Oh, and I hope you guys... Well, it's just time, isn't it? It's just time. Yeah. And that's always the thing with this podcast. I hope it, it provides people with the opportunity to listen to something in a more easily digestible way. It would yeah. take a long time for every health visitor around the country to do what I've done. Do I'm not, it's yeah. not anything particularly special. I'm sure they're all more than capable <laughs> of doing it. But it's the time required yeah. to do it. No, completely. Is the difficult part. Anyway, if you've got anything to ask us, you can find us on IamAHealthVisitor at gmail.com, on nice. Instagram at IamAHV, and we've got a Facebook page as well, I am a health visitor. Um, Can I do a quick shout out as well? I don't know when we'll, this one will be out, but yeah. thank you to Jess, lovely Jess on Facebook, who gave our podcast a massive shout out, oh, which yeah, we really you, appreciated. Um, it was lovely. And yeah, and let us know... Um, 
whether this has been helpful um yeah and yeah and look up possums because i think yeah. that sounds definitely like the way forward yeah sleep baby and you i, I expect that we will hear more from basis on that as it develops yes. brilliant all right take care and bye for now thanks very much everyone bye bye